You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Echo Park, California, where folks read their letters on stage, real letters they've written, letters they've received, correspondence back and forth, or letters we wish we could write. Marlena Nichols is a writer just returned from an artistic expedition in the Arctic. She reads letters from her 80-year-old self to her present-day self. So this is a letter about what she had to say. And I don't know why she's vaguely English. I'm not. But there's a big distance between me and my 80-year-old self, so I figure something happens along the way to make me more interesting. My darling Marlena, I'm in Jakarta on standby for the next flight to Bombay, giving a talk at the university about the latest book and staying with Rana for a while. Then I'm going to Paris. I plan to see Emre and Laurence for good old-fashioned arguments about life and love. I sometimes feel as if I've left parts of myself all around the world, some for safekeeping with various friends, and others, I will admit, have been in the witness protection program for quite some time. But I love being in transit again, sitting in this no man's land of an airport waiting to be moved. I can have all the thoughts that I want, and they're all mine. No one's going to ask, did you solve the problem of your own existence? Or did you manage to figure out the meaning of life while buying chocolate duty-free? No, they're only going to ask me, did you have a good flight? I'm still working on that last one, by the way, the whole meaning thing. I mean, you're still working on it. I mean, we're still working on it. I mean, we're very ambitious. But just so I understand this, your writing me writing you is an exercise for your creativity class. Write a letter from your inner old lady to your current self who is now currently living in Los Angeles. Okay, that alone seems a little mad to me. Uh, But then again, what's more attractive than a little madness in small doses? So, all right, what can I tell you that's gonna be helpful? Do you need some advice? I mean, that's usually why people talk to old people. Uh, Advice, okay. Um, I know. Whatever you're eating, right now, order another one. Life is so much more fun if you can eat two of everything, especially desserts. Uh, Oh, and a little-known fact. Cake and pastries eaten in foreign countries have no calories. (laughs) Domestic ones do. So don't waste calories on anything bought at 99-cent stores. That's Los Angeles. Nothing bought in a 99-cent store counts as dessert. Uh, And neither do those blueberry muffins, the ones that you've been eating for lunch for the last year while working as a secretary. Muffins are bastardizations of all things holy and a clear sign that you are depressed. (laughs) Just make sure that whatever is at the end of your fork should be the most luscious thing that you have put in your mouth all day. Okay, at least the second most luscious thing, which brings me to my next bit of advice for you. Um, You need to be having more sex. I know it's counterintuitive to what they've told you, what your mother said, but frankly, you're just not sleeping with enough men. I mean, there's love and all that, but really, you don't want every man you meet to pay your insurance premiums. And not every man wants you to be the one to wash his underwear on a weekly basis. Well, he might, but you shouldn't. Until he's the right one, of course, and there will be a few of those. But 
I know that when looking back, you're going to think that Jean-Francois was a mistake for a long time. But frankly, a good French lover is never a mistake. No matter how brief the affair may have been. And sometimes the most egregious mistakes one can make is not behaving badly enough. Just do it for me. I need the memories. Because darling, aging is a vacuous bitch. She won't leave you much to remember yourself by, not on the surface anyway. And I know, I know you're hardcore enough to get Botoxed and waxed on the same day, but at a certain point, you have to allow yourself to be ravaged by the years. It's the only way they're gonna know you lived. And it's funny, we're together here at this moment, you and I, but really, I mean, we are the same person, but we're separated by imagination and a lot of weary lines and an upper left thigh full of varicose veins. Yes, the vein thing is going to happen, uh, but there are lots of creams on the market, and frankly, it's really a small price to pay for a lifetime of looking fabulous in high heels. Oh, right, I should probably talk to you about accessories. Now, as much as I love shoes, if you are ever in deep despair, don't buy the shoes, buy the bag. Shoes are wonderful, we have a lot of them, but a good bag, a perfectly shaped piece where everything fits in, that's like a marriage. You'll overstuff it, the strap will have to be repaired, but it's always the chicest thing in the room and you're not gonna share it with anyone. And then there's the dot, 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 and then Darling, I'm sorry for the break and the very pink pen that I am now writing with, but my black one ran out. I sent a dozen people searching their bathtub-sized carry-ons for this one, and they came up short. They all offered to record my voice so that I could text it to me, meaning you, meaning us, uh, but I couldn't explain that that was impossible, and even 40 years from now, you won't be able to metaphysically text. Thank God the Buddhist monk sitting 13 chairs away had a pink pin. We've been eating together. Whenever I meet a monk, I feel like I should feed him. Not because he needs it, mostly because I need it. So we had honey and crackers and crumbling cheese and apricots and plums that I'd been given from Yanti for the flight and dates, lots of dates. Everything seems to have a seed in it, so when I asked him what he thought the meaning of life was so that I could pass it on to you, he pressed his fingers into the fruit and exposed the seed and says, I think we're making it right now. <laughs> and then he added that we should forgive ourselves a little bit more. And I'm thinking of that apartment that we lost in New York when we had to separate from our lover and uh, how we smashed all of the grandmother's dishes against the concrete floor when we failed to make a house. And the niece we tried to help, but we couldn't. And all we can do is show compassion and kindness. And listen, honey, I'm gonna tell you something. You're not going to be everything you dreamed of. And um, well, I, probably I won't be what you dreamed of becoming either, but Together, we aren't really half bad. I've got published books, there's been lots of laughter, nothing's been wasted, and we shared the lives of friends and lovers. We were loved and are loved. Is that too corny to write in a letter? I'm old. You made me old. You have to accept this. And everyone, frankly, is wondering who gets our shoe collection when we die. 
So for now, the only advice I can give you is have a cocktail, buy a bag, fuck a French bartender, and live your life, because you are going to make a wonderful old lady. Love, Marlena. Thank you. As Lisa Wa puts it, the tales of her Uncle Lee are the favorite bits of family lore told between bouts of gunfire. We're from the South, she explains. Lisa interviews her Uncle Lee as personified by Chris Sheets about the events leading up to the letters. This is about my father's large impoverished family and what drove Uncle Lee, um, the oldest of 16 kids, to commit a crime. Um, but first, you need to know a little bit about what led him to that crime. So if you'll bear with us, we're going to take you to the moment of the letters. So we'll start with my Uncle Lee was a tough kid. And so yeah, how, how yeah. tough were you? Yeah, uh, well, we didn't have shit. We were sharecroppers and was the damn pits. And we were always poor. We helped Daddy with his uh, still to make corn liquor, but mostly we were hungry and mad about that most of the time. And so you were pretty rambunctious. <laughs> well, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, well, when we got older, around 13 for me, me and your daddy, Jesse, and Buford, we'd run around Jackson County and raise hell. And we'd steal livestock and cars and other guys' women. And, well, we'd return the cars and replace the livestock with daddy's corn liquor, but the women, <laughs> we kept them. <laughs> but why would they stay with you? We were like 13. Well, we were good looking and charming. Especially me. So, okay, so this is a question we always ask. Did you guys have any ambitions? Well, yes, we did. <clears throat> Us kids all had the same one, and it was to get the hell off that godforsaken farm. And how were you particularly going to do that? Well, I was going to lie about my age, get into whatever military would take me and put some dough by, and then after the war, I'd drive away from that shithole. Now, which war was this? In World War II, the Marines took me. Okay, so, um, go ahead. So, how old were you? What, did you, who did you, what age did you tell the Marines you were when you well, I was eight. I told them I was 18, but of course I was 16 or 17. I mean, I, shit, I could have been 15, but that... <clears throat> they took anybody after Pearl Harbor. They didn't care. So I went to boot camp in Point Royal, South Carolina at Paris Island. Paris Island was a very tough place. <laughs> oh, was it? Now, after growing up the way we did, sleeping on top of each other like cordwood and learning how to smoke uh, corn silk so we wouldn't be hungry all the time, yeah, Paris Island was fucking Disneyland. <laughs> and when we got three squares, I got my own rifle, we didn't, we didn't have to share boots with anybody. I slept in a bed by myself, and they gave me a monthly check on top of all that. And all I had to do is what they told me. No, 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 not one of the Marines could hit as hard as my pop, not even that son of a bitch drill sergeant. So tell us about your experience in World War II. Well, I was sent to the Pacific Theater. See, I got taken prisoner, I escaped, I killed the enemy, I saved some guys, they gave me medals and all that shit. And I did pretty good at that, so they sent me back stateside first as a drill sergeant, then later to tour around the country with the Marines and get some more guys to sign up. So you must have been a pretty charismatic guy. I was a goddamn poster boy for the Marines. Handsome, rugged, de decorated, simplified Dallas, you bet your ass. <laughs> okay, so while you were doing this, were you saving any of this money that you were making? Well, I... I was when I was out there fighting, but less when I was out there with the recruiting tour. 
and I was sending home my pay to the old man. We didn't, we didn't deal with the banks. Um, and he was hanging on to it for me, so when I got home, I'd give him a little bit, but I'd, be, I'd buy a car and get the hell out of Alabama. But you didn't send so much home when you were out on the tour? Why? <laughs> well, I drank a lot. And I busted up a hotel room in New York City. You know, I paid for the stuff I broke up, but uh, I scared a lot of people, and they got, I got sent home early. What do you mean you got sent home early? Well, I wasn't used to that kind of life. I, I hadn't been around that many women who looked like these women did. And uh, there were these fancy night spots and hotels like Bucking Mansions. And when the Marines were footing the bill so I could go out and drink and eat and do whatever. And as long as I told young men how amazing the Marines was and how glorious war was and all that shit. So when I wasn't up on stage and talk, we're talking to guys about how great it all was, I went out in the town and I got crazy, got into fights. <laughs> they told me I punched out MPs, bouncers, GIs, cab drivers, just about anybody. I was a menace. <laughs> so they, uh, they kicked me out, dishonorable discharge. How'd you feel about a dishonorable discharge? <laughs> oh, fine. Fine, I know I got to see the world and I got to do all those things and I, shit, I got out when boys was still getting killed all over the damn place, so I can consider myself lucky. So, did you tell your dad you were coming home early? <laughs> no, I thought I'd surprise Mama. She'd be happy I got home a year earlier than she was expecting and when I showed up, Daddy sure did look surprised when I rolled up. So he wasn't happy to see you? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> He had spent every goddamn penny I sent home, brought himself a, bought himself a radio, a new mule, shit like that. So what'd you do? Well, first, I tore the house to pieces, which it didn't take much because it was a shotgun shack pile of rubble to begin with. My mama was hollering at me, and she was hollering at the old man, and it was a bad scene. So I went, I went out to the still and drank a bunch of shine, and... Shit, my brothers were all off at the war, so no one was there to talk to or understand, and and the girls and the younger kids were scared of me. I mean, I was, ter I was terrifying, you, you understand me? Terrifying. And I wanted to kill my old man. But that wouldn't do no good, and wouldn't get my money back, and he wasn't no father, and he didn't know how, he didn't know nothing about it. So I started walking, and I walked up to Sand Mountain. And it's a long walk from Scottsboro, about 20 miles. I'm gonna walk across the river bridge. And I got up at the top of the mountain near Rainsville, and <laughs> you know how come every shitty town ends with a, with a ville or a borough? <laughs> Shitsville, Cockborough. <laughs> okay, so you take this 20 mile walk, and were you calm by then, by the time you got to the top? Yeah. Yeah, I also had time to make out a plan of how I was gonna get out of there. I was gonna, I was gonna take Hoyt's truck. Who's Hoyt? <laughs> well, he owned the only uh, gas station in Rainsville, and I knew he had money in that old truck, and he we used to steal it when we were kids and bring it back in the morning and leave Hoyt some chickens or some liquor for his trouble, and he never said nothing about it. So you were gonna ask Hoyt for some money in the truck, right? No. No, I was gonna rob Hoyt. <laughs> I was so mad at Daddy, and I was mad at the town, and everybody, and I was, it wasn't fair, but I was mad at Hoyt. 
and I was going to take it by force. I was sick of it all. The rich people running the town, the church judging everybody, being dirt poor, all that. The pinch-faced virgin girls looking for a husband, and I, I'd been to war, and it was all terrible, and I wanted out of there. So what did you do? Weren't you worried about being caught stealing this truck? There were nobody around. That was a tiny, tiny little old place. Hoyt had a customer every two hours if he was lucky. So I walked in. I was drunk but sober from the walk. And uh, it was fall and it had been sprinkling. And I said, Hoyt, I'm going to rob you. And I had my M191145 from the war. And Hoyt didn't blink. He, he looked at me as if I was walking in there to ask him to fill her up. So I said, Hoyt, I'm not messing around now. I need all your money from the register and that truck out there. And what did he do? Well, he looked a little surprised, but he didn't move. So I'd holler at him, and then he realized that it wasn't the usual Saturday night joyride type deal. He, he opened up the register. And did he say anything when this was going on? Hmm? Well, he said something like, I'm not going to call the law on you because of your daddy, what he's done. And I told him what daddy had done about with the money, and Hoyt knew how bad off the family always was. But he wasn't happy about being robbed and a gun in his face. Not at all, not at all. Did you, did you think you were going to shoot him or something? I don't think he knew what to believe. I mean, it looked different. I looked crazy. I mean, I'd been overseas. I wasn't a kid anymore. So my uncle, he robs Hoyt, and he makes his way to South Carolina. And this is the only place that he knew because he was close to Paris Island. They're very close cities. So he drives his, he drives his stolen uh, truck to Columbia, and it breaks down for the last time there. So he decides this is where he's going to stay. <laughs> this is how my uncle fought. And a little while later, uh, I think my uncle's conscience got the best of him. And so he told me that he wrote the series of letters, and he wrote to Hoyt. Dear Hoyt, I'm sorry about taking your 150. I feel bad about it. You know how Daddy ruined my plans getting out of Alabama and I had to take your truck like I told you that night when I took it. Now, I know taking your truck is going to put you out in a tight spot for a spell, but here's $200 in an envelope so you can buy another one like the one I stole. Uh, P.S. I made my way to South Carolina and have done well. I met a lady and she had let me live in her storeroom. <laughs> Don't tell Daddy and them where I am. Sign Lee Wall. So Hoyt promptly wrote back to my uncle, and he said, Dear Lee, thank you for the money. I already replaced it with a new truck, so I'm giving your $200 to the church. I did not report you to the sheriff because I know how Atlee is, plus you told me the gun wasn't loaded. Remember, you might not because you were pretty drunk. <laughs> me and Ella will pray for you. So several years later, my uncle would educate himself at the local community learning center where he met his wife, Barbara, and uh, she would teach him about wine and art and poetry. She made him like a pretty respectable, respectable man, and he owned a chain of gas stations in, in, in Columbia, and he lived in one of those nice upper middle class neighborhoods that you do. And then later on, I think he decided to check in with Hoyt, probably to crow a little bit about his success, but also because he wanted to brag, I think, about where he was and because he couldn't tell his own father, who was petty and still mad as hell that his oldest boy had run off. Dear Hoyt, I've done well over the years. I own eight Chevron gas stations in Columbia, South Carolina area. 
I wanted to let you know how I was doing. I think about you every November and still feel bad about it. But I know you're a godly man and have forgiven me. And I paid you for the truck a while back. I hope you and Ella and the kids are doing fine. Sincerely, Lee Wall. Dear Lee, I am glad you're doing so well. Ella and me are doing fine and so are the kids. We are retired from the gas station business. The value of the vintage F-150U Tuck was for $4,500 blue book. You can send a check. May God bless. Hoyt. Uncle Lee didn't hesitate to take pen to paper. He promptly wrote back, Go fuck yourself, Hoyt. I'm glad I robbed you, you self-righteous skin flint. Lee. My uncle received a letter from Hoyt promptly, but he burned it in the backyard with his fall leaves. Fuck Alabama. Drew Drogi is best known for his impersonation of Chloe Sevigny in the viral videos aptly named Chloe. He improvises a letter based on the audience suggestion of a scarlet letter. Dearest Nigel, <laughs> that's right, it's me again, fantastic Diane. Oh, how I loved our filthy rendezvous last week outside of Cinnabon. We shared a ooey gooey sinful cinnamon biscuit. You looked into my hazel, rich, thieving eyes, and I just laughed. <laughs> oh, Nigel, what we're doing is so wrong. Oh, if only the whole neighborhood knew of our horrifying tryst, there would be meetings and much filthier letters written about us. Would that I could email you, I would do that, but I decided to compose a letter in my own scribing. <laughs> it's far easier for me to, to write like this, for you see, I've written one word a night of this letter. This letter has taken me four and a half years to compose. But if my husband were to catch me, he would bite me again. That's right. My husband bites me when he's upset with me, and as you can imagine, our sex life is terrible, Nigel. But when I looked across the cul-de-sac at you many years ago in your raven hair and your winter eyes, that's right, you have eyes that are like the season of winter, cold, piercing, harrowing. I was terrified of you. And I felt such a chasm of fear and terror and also of scared terror and fear. <laughs> Sorry, last week I wasn't very creative, but I'm back. Nigel, hello Nigel. 
Right now, I'm wearing nothing more than a, than a cloak <laughs> that I bought from the Burlington Coat Factory <laughs> on sale. <laughs> Underneath, I'm fully nude. Oh, Nigel, were, would that you could come over here away from my biting husband. I would show you my nude body. Unfortunately, we have not slept together yet, but I know one of these days it will happen. Nigel, I move very slowly, as you know. You know it took me three weeks to eat that Cinnabon, but it was worth every bite. Nigel, you seem so lonely, just standing on the cliff of your parapet. <laughs> Often birds perch upon your shoulders, and you, your winter eyes instructs them what to do. Just quickly leave. You've pushed everyone away out of your life. Except for me, fantastic Diane. I will sit here drinking a hot drink of mulling spices, cinnamon, clove, and orange whispers, wishing that you would just leave your horrifying stoop and come over and touch my cloak. Happy holidays, fantastic Diane. <laughs> Thank you. Margot Lightman is a five-time Moth winner and New York Moth Grand Slam winner. She shares letters of a high school crush gone horribly wrong. It takes place in high school in the 90s. I was not a hot commodity in any way. Um, and I was 5'10", and then I had, my, this is a side note, but I didn't get my adult teeth for the baby teeth, and they had missing teeth, and then it was like, I was just not hot, okay? I just was not hot. Uh, I didn't know what, I don't want to be that, per, like, I know I'm okay now. I don't want to be that Tyra Banks. It's like, oh, I was so ugly when I was young, and nobody believes you. I really was. I really was. <laughs> by the time I graduated high school, I'd been to about 100 concerts. I, I grew up in Jersey by the Stone Pony, by the Count Basie Theater, by the Art Center, and I just constantly went to rock concerts nonstop. Because when I went to these concerts, my 70s vintage clothes were hot, according to these guys, and I was like this, this rock goddess. And then I'd go back to high school, and I would be teased and, and bullied. But when I would be at these concerts, I just felt like a, a new person with a lot of confidence. And I would pick up guys, and I had a mechanism of how to seduce them, which was that I would go to the concerts and I would bring bubbles. And I would blow the bubbles at the concert. And then the guys would be like, oh, who's blowing the bubbles? And then like, <laughs> like Hansel and Gretel, they would follow the bubbles. And I'd be waiting there with like my bad teeth and my vintage dress. And I'd be like, it's me. I'm blowing the bubbles. <laughs> and it'd be dark enough that they couldn't see my teeth. And they'd be like, oh, OK, you'll do. And then we would hang out for the whole concert, maybe sometimes even make out at the end of the night. And that would be it. And then I'd go to geometry class, where everybody mispronounced my name, Margot as maggot. And I would have a horrible week. And then I'd go and do it again the next weekend. That's pretty much what I did for a lot of high school. 
I usually went to like real like classic rock concerts like Santana or Allman Brothers or things like that. But I also dabbled in, it's the 90s, so I also went to a, a They Might Be Giants concert one night. It was kind of a different crowd than I was used to. And I did my bubble trick and this guy named Casey approached me and we talked for a while over like Anna Ang and Particle Man and he was like, so what's your name? And I was like, Margo. And he was like, Margo what? And I was like, Margo Lightman. He was like, oh cool, what town do you live in? I was like, Madawan. He was like, cool, I live in Howell. And like we talked for a little bit and at the end of the concert, he gave me like a peck on the cheek and that was it. Cut to about four days later, I'm home and a letter arrives in the mail. It's from Casey. And I'm like, how the hell did this guy get my address? Like, what the hell is going on? And as I was holding the letter, my home phone rang, and it was him. And he was like, hi, it's me from the concert. And I was like, how did you get my information? And he was like, well, you said your first and your last name and what town you were from. So I went to the phone book, and I looked up possible spellings of your last name, and then cross-referenced them with your hometown. And then eventually it led me to you. So it was kind of like, he was like, I said, like this casual conversation. I was like, I'm Margo, Margo Lightman. In his head, he was like, I will find you. you know. And, so, and I love parents these days that are so concerned about their kids in the internet. This guy had a name and a phone book. and like he found me. So essentially what happened is I was a little weirded out and I don't have that original letter because I didn't think much of that. Also I was 17. And then it was a weird conversation and I realized we kind of had nothing to talk about. Kind of like a vacation friend, you know what I mean? Like you go to Aruba and you have cocktails on the beach with this couple and you think you're going to stay in touch. But if you actually stayed in touch, you would really have nothing to talk about in real life. Like that's what this was. We had nothing to talk about after the concert. And so I thought, all right, well that was a weird thing, but it'll, it'll end. But the letters kept coming and the phone calls kept coming, and it was a lot, and it, it kept repeating. And then eventually I received this card on Valentine's Day, which said, Valentine, I'm not his Valentine, I met him for five minutes. Okay, Valentine, you seem to be on my mind all the time, night and day, every waking moment, and even when I'm asleep. Like, this is a pre-printed, this is a stalker, pre-print, this is like, in this section, for stalkers, like right here, okay. Every waking moment, even when I'm asleep, I'm beginning to think maybe I like you or something. Happy Valentine's Day. And then he writes, okay, enough pretending. I don't care. See this. And then it says, feeling blue without you. Uh, missing you on Valentine's Day. And then his initials. And then it says, on the back, it says, wow, you read the back of cards. Very unusual. Not as rare as me writing an orange, though. Anyway, all else aside, hope we can hang out sometime soon. Just thinking of you, Casey. And I was like, I don't want to hang out. You kind of like weirdly got my info. I've been to like 20 concerts since this. It wasn't as significant to me as it was to you, but I, I left it alone. And also I left it alone because I kind of I kind of like the attention. Like nobody else was paying attention to me. And this guy was like sending me letters and calling me. And I was like, well, he's a little unstable, but it is what it is. And um, so I don't tell my parents, and the letters keep coming, and I get home from school before they get home from work, and I'm taking the letters out of the mailbox, and they get a little, they get a little weird. So he, he, he kept wanting to ask to meet me in person, and I didn't want to do that. And then his letters became these like meta letters, like, like about how I wouldn't really write him back, but then he would, he, he started to think that maybe I wasn't opening them, so then he would send me letters like this that just said like, write me, write me, write me, write me, write, like on the outside in case I didn't open it. And it says in a swirl, I wish I had had this pen for the first few letters. 
it writes twice as much, so I could have actually written half as many call yous on the first time I asked you to call me. So really, like this is like a calligraphy pen or something like that, and he's just writing, write me, write me, write me, write me. And then inside, there's a, hu there's, a, there's a hug coupon, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, you don't want to date a guy that mails you a hug coupon, right? Like, do you want to? I don't mean to be a snob. I didn't have any other options, but I was like, I don't know. I'll just be alone. And then there's this poem. I, he didn't even write it. The trees are naked, the sky is bare, the night is cold, filled with sparkling air. Undulating cloud patterns speculate my sky, tickling my soul, softly I sigh. Leaves crush beneath my feet, now I'm packing snow. Winter is my favorite as far as seasons go. You know what I mean, like we spoke for five minutes. I don't need a mail, I don't need this, I don't need this. And then the letter, you know, it's essentially kind of just a lot of just how was his day and his life. I'll just skip to the end where he says, as for the envelope, you don't need to write me. You just mentioned that you might. And just think of it as a great procrastination task. And then he insults my intelligence, parentheses, it says, definition of procrastination, something done to avoid doing something else. I know that, okay, Casey? Um, Sorry so many cross-outs, but I wanted to write with my fountain pen. I'm a romanticist, and I don't own any yellow out. Well, anyway, talk to you soon. I must go worship my mailbox now. Worship my mailbox, waiting for a letter from me. Regards and rainbows, Casey. See back for P.S. And then the P.S. is, are you busy on Sunday? A bunch of friends and I are going to visit Ariella, who's someone back from college on winter break, to see a poetry reading, maybe a movie, and the Inkwell, which is a cool coffee shop. All very tentative now, but I thought I'd tell you a bit ahead of time to see if it, maybe you could make it. Some of them are from my high school. It would be great. I hope you can come. Let me know. So he keeps asking to hang out, and now it becomes like less from a vacation friend and more of like a prison husband. It's like, it's fun to write you letters, but if you get out of jail, we meet in person, like, you might kill me. So I didn't want to. And so he just kept writing constantly, and the letters would be things like, he would get me on the phone sometimes, and then he would forget to tell me something, and then he'd mail me a letter. Like, I specifically remember him mailing me a letter being like, I forgot to mention another female vocalist I think it's good as Bonnie Raitt, and that was the whole letter. And I know nowadays you would text that to somebody, like, oh, I forgot to tell you this, but this guy wrote it in a pen, put it in a paper, folded it in three, put it in an envelope, wrote an envelope, put a stamp on it, walked it to a mail, just because he forgot to tell me something, and it was just, it was intense. So. I eventually kind of was really trying to do a fade out and um, that wasn't working. And then I got a letter in the mail that really frightened me. And it wasn't so much the letter, but it was the envelope. So the envelope looks okay. Um, and then it just says, from Casey, and then it says, call me, don't forget. And then it says, for Margo, call him with arrows to the return signature. And you think that's weird, no. I'm just gonna, I know you can't all see this. I also want you to know that I've saved this because this, I believed at the time, I was like, this is the most anyone will ever like you in your life, so keep it. And I am married now, and I still am like, I think this guy liked me more than anyone has ever liked me. Okay, so this guy, the envelope says, it's over and over again, it says, call me, 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 call me. And then it, it has an erasure of call me's into the call me's, and then he wrote, he has like black lead on, and then it's call me and white out. And then on the top, the craziest part is that he's actually written call me out of call me's. Does that make sense? Like he has formulated the words call me to shape the word call me on the top of this. This arrived in, do you understand the postal worker that was like putting this in the mailbox was like, good luck girl. Like when this, like you're gonna die. Like this is, you're gonna die, okay? So, and then the en inner envelope. I can't believe I've saved this. I'm 35 years old. I'm 17 years old. I saved this. Oh my God. Okay. 
uh, call me. Aren't you forgetting to do something? Stop opening this envelope and call me now. Quick before you forget. Well, you can read the letter first, but then don't. Don't forget. If I told you once, I told you a thousand times, call me, call me. It's just a friendly reminder. Okay, so then I'll read you the letter and then I'll read you the insert. Hi, how was your day? That reminds me, with all my telling you about my sunny trip, you never uh, told me about your vacation. Maybe it was something super cool that you are not remembering because you don't tell anyone anything. <laughs> just you, Casey. Just you. I tell no nothing to. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry about the envelope. But I dig stuff like that, as you probably would have guessed. Decorating envelopes and stuff. Some of my friends say my envelopes are better than my letters sometimes. Most of my friends agree that my best letters are better than me in person. That's a great way to be remembered. Too bad Casey died. I'll miss him. Oh, yeah, and his letters to me. Oh, my God. I'll never read another Casey envelope. Ah! In fact, once over the summer, a friend and I simply sent em empty envelopes back and forth. Anyway, none of that's relevant because I'm not in top form right now in letters, envelope, or in person, but I really do enjoy letter writing. It's such a pleasant form of communication. You get to think about all that you'll say before you write it. It can be as short or long as you like, and unlike phone calls, if you get a letter you don't want to read, just throw it away. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> the best form of communication is, of course, that is conducted in person. Subtle facial expressions and body language and such will never be captured in letters, phone calls, faxes, emails, nor even video phones. That had not been invented, but it is now, so good call. Um, I've enclosed a list of things to do so that you can organize your weekend. I hope you'll find it amusing. Say, do you have any photos of you lying around that you could send me? I keep telling my friends how beautiful you are and they don't believe me because I wasn't at the time. Seriously, I would like to have a photo though if you've got one. I'll just put it in perspective. I faked sick on picture day that year because I, of my teeth and I didn't want it to be forever immortalized <laughs> in a published yearbook. So that's like, that's the way I looked at the time. And he's like, send a picture. And like, I was so low on myself that I couldn't even take a picture of myself that year. Oh, God. Um, seriously, I, I was tentatively thinking that maybe I could come up and visit you the weekend after next. How does that sound? Hope you can give me relatively good directions. Oh, and about that career thing. Just last week, I got a sudden urge to be a locksmith. I mentioned it to my parents. I mentioned it to my parents and they gave me their blessing, commenting on the side how much they'll save on my college tuition if I don't go. So I guess my parents will let me do what I want, hmm. Anyway, nice writing to you and I hope you remember to, uh, oh, well, what was that? Oh yeah, call me. Okay, this is it all in the call me envelope. Now I'm gonna read you uh, the insert. Much crazier than the letter. Things to do today in order of priority from Margot Brett Lightman. Wake up, normalize my voice. Think about what I'll say when I call my good pal Casey. Eat breakfast, unplug the phone and do a dry run, practice dialing, waiting for it to ring several times, Casey's answering machine to probably pick up, leave me a message like, this is Margo, if you're there, pick up. If not, just calling because I got your letter and envelope, call me back, hey, practice sobbing for hours because I wasn't home. Important, plug the phone back in, eat lunch. Final preparations for call, practice fake laughter for Casey's bad jokes, get a French dictionary by the phone, etc. Call Casey, and then his phone number again. Use eating dinner. eating dinner as an ideal excuse to get off when you tire of Casey. Then eat dinner. Go to bed, exhausted from all this work. Alternate things to-do list. Call Casey. Make sure, that's in caps. Make sure you're really called and aren't just lying to yourself so you think it's over and you don't have to do it. That is in caps too. 
Call the phone company to verify that you've called 938-3099. Call the phone company to make sure that you've just called the phone company to verify to call 938-3099. Then he like makes a joke, like, I'm not crazy. Battle off that Gila monster, <laughs> Okay, say hi to the green whale in your living room. Like he's making horrible jokes to prove he's not crazy. Gasp in horror that you realize that you're in school and you've forgotten to change out of your pajamas. Wake up in a cold sweat. Call Casey. So at this point, I was like weirded out. And I told him, um, I called him. And I was like, look, I'm really not interested in meeting in person. It was just like a fun night we had at a concert. But I kind of just need to end this. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's totally fine. And then uh, I don't have the letter because I threw it in the garbage because I was so horrified by it. But about a week later, not even a week later, a few days later, I got this letter that said, um, you know, Margo, I thought we had something really, really special. And he was like, and I remember the wording very clear because I was 17 and I was a virgin and I had never experienced anything like this before. And he writes, I, I, you know, I thought we had something special. And then it said, and I quote, it doesn't mean we have to fuck or anything, but I thought there was something real there. And I remember looking at this letter and being like, fuck? You can mail the word fuck? Like I was so offended. <laughs> And I, I threw it in the garbage, and I was so horrified that my mom was going to find it, and I was so scared. And my parents were out at the, around that time, and they were driving the car that I shared with them, this minivan. And I looked out the window, because they were back early from running errands, and they were in the driveway with the hood up of the car, and it was smoking. And my parents are like these academic types. They would never be working on a car unless something was like really seriously going on. And I went outside and I said, uh, oh my God, what's wrong? And my mother was like, it was the weirdest thing. We were running errands and there was a block of wood by the fan belt of the car and it was rubbing like this and it was smoking. It was about to catch fire. I was like, a block of wood? And she was like, yeah. And she goes, it looks like it was placed there. And I was like, oh, uh, oh, oh. And, she, and then my mother goes, do you know anyone who might have had something out for you, Margo? Uh, mind me, she knows nothing. And she goes, uh, you know, maybe someone, someone at school, perhaps, or a boy that li likes you, or, or something weird like that. And I, I had told her nothing. And she pauses for a second, and I just want to dispute everything about what had happened. And in the next breath, my mother literally goes, I'm sorry, Margo. I know no one would ever do anything like that to you. Like, immediately. And I was like, <laughs> so I never got another letter. I'm pretty sure it's because I think he thought he killed me. Like, I think he thought he set fire to my car. I never heard from him again. I'm very attainable. I have a website. Like, I've never heard from him again. Uh, but I'm, I'm still here. Uh, Casey, I'm still here. Thank you. <laughs> This being the December show, I thought it only appropriate to read my letter to Father Christmas. Dear Father Christmas, I haven't written to you in many years, and that's probably a good thing. I do miss you, though. I miss those earnest letters in which I put my best foot forward and truly believed I deserved the thing I was gasping for. I miss really believing in something in willing myself to sleep Christmas Eve so you could come and deliver your magic, eating the biscuits and milk carefully laid out, always making sure to leave a bite lest we think you a glutton. I miss Rudolph's toothy bite marks on the half-eaten carrot. I miss being so fucking precious. <laughs> Things kind of went to hell after you left. Granted, presents took on a more realistic duty. 
Who could forget the carton of camel cigarettes and assortment of Bic lighters peeking rebelliously out of my stocking? <laughs> Never had a Christmas sock brought such joy. But after your departure came the responsibility to gift with as much magic and intuition as you. Some of my choices landed well. Some brought genuine tears, the handmade gifts of sentimentality. And some gifts concretized my family standing as freak. It was the year I gave my family a toilet seat for Christmas. <laughs> I was old enough that the gift couldn't be considered an act of childish naivete. I think I was well into my predilection for vodka and orange. <laughs> Under the advice of another somewhat remote and ostracized family member, I was led to believe that a nice wooden toilet seat with brass fixtures would be appealing to new homeowners. It had a fashionable cardboard carrying case with a viewing window so one could stop to admire the toilet seat nestled in its temporary housing and a sturdy plastic handle with which to carry it about. This came in handy when I had to cross the U.S.-Canadian border. I had taken the Greyhound bus into British Columbia from Washington and was required to walk through customs for inspection. I gingerly laid the toilet seat on the counter, along with my bag. Anything to declare? Just a few Christmas gifts for my family. What's that? A toilet seat. Snow fell quietly on the Peace Arch border crossing. Seagulls surfed snowdrifts. Babies were born. Father Christmas packed his sleigh, and somewhere a grizzly bear yawned. Finally, the customs agent said, Miss, why are you transporting a toilet seat into Canada? It's a gift for my mom and dad. They just bought a new house, and I thought... <laughs> the grizzly bear settled in for his winter's kip. The seagulls lifted off in search of a salty snack, and finally the agent waved me on. Merry Christmas, Miss. I felt that all of Canada was smirking at me in that moment. I never did see that toilet seat in use. I did ask about it once, which was a mistake, because we're British. Mom, what happened to that toilet seat, what I gave you at Christmas? Oh, sweetheart. And in the silence that ensued, <laughs> tea was made and drunk. A sausage roll was consumed, and a Christmas sweater was knit that could easily house all of Torrance. <laughs> I still have that sweater. It's got a label in it that says, Made with Love by Mum. But I bet all of Father Christmas's sleigh bells, they don't have that seat. I miss you, Father Christmas, you son of a bitch. You and your big black boots I could never hope to fill. Happy Christmas. All my love, Jane. You've been listening to To Whom It May Concern. Special thanks to Aaron Gilmartin for his musical accompaniment that ranged from the flamenco guitar to banjo to ukulele. And to Justin Crane 
for producing this podcast. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a letter. And hey, if you have a letter you'd like to submit, even if you live far away, we'll read it for you. Visit www.readyourletter.com. If God offered me the truth, I would still prefer my youth. I'd have my happiness through finding that I judged and I was wrong. I had to look and